This is Getting the Bread with Carla Cafe. There's so much magic that went into our story building Carla Cafe, and we want to use this podcast to talk to other people about their journeys and finding the magic that happened along the way that landed people and the careers and building the businesses that they're building. So I'd imagine that we're not a totally unique story in how we've gotten to where we've gotten and kind of the spirituality we've discovered along the way. And we want to talk to other people about their stories and find that magic in their stories and share that with all of you. I hope you enjoy. This podcast is with my dear friend, Ryan Millsap. I actually first met Ryan at USC. He was my professor in a class that actually Jessica and I took together. And it was by far my favorite class at USC. And I would just sit in class and be thinking, I love everything this guy says. And I can't have my relationship with him. And after this semester, so for the first time in my life, I just approached him at the end of the semester and I was like, hey, can we, you know, hang out? <laughs> and so Ryan and I started hanging out soon after that class. And off the bat, I remember the first time I sat with him, the conversation within like five minutes got super deep. And before we knew it, we were talking about God, religion, and he was telling me about his faith in God and how he got there. And at the time, I think I was probably leaning more agnostic. And we built a deep friendship. And now with his wife, Brittany and, and Jessica, the four of us are great friends. And Ryan is an amazing entrepreneur. He's bought over $1.5 billion worth of real estate and sold over $2 billion worth of real estate, profiting over $500 million for his investors. So Ryan's an amazing entrepreneur, really amazing mind, really great friend. And I thought it would be really cool to get some of the types of conversations Ryan and I have on mic. And so I hope to actually do a series of podcasts with him. And this one is the first. So it doesn't, as, as great of an entrepreneur, Ryan, as we actually, I think, don't touch on any of that at all. So I had to record this intro because like many of Ryan and I's conversations, they're just kind of ongoing and take all these turns. And as soon as we turn on the mic, we already had a conversation going and it took all these turns. And I think maybe like an hour and a half in is the first chance we got to actually do any sort of introduction. So just the heads up, it's going to start and it's just going to get going quick. So I really hope you guys enjoy this. And if you do listen and you do like it, please let us know. I love this. Like when I have a podcast, I have a team that like they that set everything up and they do all this shit. And I just show up to do the podcast. And I love that. Like, you know how to do all this shit and you're just doing it yourself. And you say so you're the producer. And yeah. Well, we, then we send it off to someone to edit and of do course. the rest of it. Like, yeah, which is cool. But how awesome is it? You just know how to even just get the raw. Yeah. Yeah. Because I also like there's been times where we just have people over for dinner and then like if we start having a conversation, I'm like, like maybe we should just start recording. <laughs> you know what I mean? It's so good. <laughs> right? I mean, it's it's pretty simple and straightforward too. Then maybe maybe you should have a separate podcast that's the drunk podcast. So you can only have conversations after I know. After dinner and after drinks. Everybody's yes. drunk. And then 
you really dive into shit that they otherwise may not. I want to do that. For no, I'll sure. talk about anything sober or, <laughs> but most people won't. That's true. Right? I don't even need vino for Veritas. I was watching this a Jordan Peterson clip the other day, and he was talking about how drinking actually doesn't make you dumber. It just makes you more okay with risk. Yeah. So he's like, so if he's like, actually, if you talk to people, they're like still aware of all the risks. They're yeah. just more comfortable with it. <laughs> you know what I mean? Like you don't lose sight of like <clears throat> that's the really risk funny. of what you're doing when you're drunk. <clears throat> when you're drunk, <clears throat> you're just more comfortable with the risk. Mm-hmm. Yeah, no wonder I'm the same drunk or sober. Uh huh. And it just <laughs> removes anxiety. So like, if you uh-huh. have like a like, because like ra- there, there's things that anxiety will stop you from doing things that are rationally the right thing to do. You know what I mean? Like, because rationally, for example, like on a simple, simple basis, rationally, a guy can understand that the risk reward of going up and talking to a girl you want to talk to. Right. There's really there's the no downside. downside is really like, what's the downside? Yeah, but that, that is the one of the few to, examples in life where the where the aunt, the the old the worst they could say is no. Yes. That actually kind of applies. <laughs> On yeah. some level, like in that situation, in a lot of situations, that's not true yeah. because you can ask for things where people can say no and he's an asshole yes. no, and he's trying to steal from me or he's trying to, he, he doesn't give a shit if he, if he does a deal that's good. Yes. He just wants to do a deal that's good for him. Yes. Not that everybody needs, everybody's self-interested, but in, a, in an ideal capitalist system, people have their own self-interest in mind, but also the other person's interest in mind such that they cut a deal that is a repeatable deal, a relational deal. It's funny you're saying that. So I, I guess we're just starting the podcast. Just we'll starting. do, we'll yeah, do an intro later. later. <laughs> right. Mm-hmm. So I mean, like so I go to therapy and the last couple of times I went to therapy. How long have you been going to therapy? Long time, long but time. not necessarily consistently. Same, same therapist. It's been the same therapist now for like 12 years, probably. Woman, a man. Le- woman. Woman. I think woman. I've, I've always had better success with female therapists myself. I've never tried a male therapist. Yeah, it's I it's uh, I think it's less narrative, mm. mm-hmm, mm-hmm. right? And and my experience with male therapists, which I have had really good experience with male therapists. Now that I think about it, one in particular. But the beautiful thing about male therapists is they're often willing to give advice, right? Yes, and I, I've experienced female therapists very reluctant. They refrain. I just thought that was a, a, a the nature of the craft. That you're not supposed to give the advice. I just assumed because I've only had female therapists. I don't think I don't. I don't think I think that's generally the position people take. But if the goal of therapy is to help you be better at life, and this person somehow is is supposed to have insight into how to be better at life, then fucking just tell me what you think I should know. Yeah. No. <laughs> right? So so yeah. Okay. So this is a perfect example. Like. Last two sessions. Well, first of all, I realized like I, at least with my therapist, I could really only get something out of it if I'm asking the right questions. And if not, there'll be little progress made. So yeah, if you, you have to at least start, maybe you're saying with the premise that you know what you need to work on or you know what you want to work on. Yes. You have to actually be really in tune. I agree with that. And you got to like get past the blaming everything on other people. So I've had a therapist. I had a therapist before when I was younger where like, she was very okay with, like, very pro letting myself feel like a victim mm. of everybody else. Mm. And very little about what could I have done differently. Right. <laughs> you know what I mean? So, okay. And that form of therapy was miserable. Like, you actually feel shittier going to the, the therapist that lets you feel like the victim. Like, 
I remember just dreading every time I had to go. Hmm. Yeah, you didn't like, know why. Did you know why you feel, were feeling dread? Well, because I felt like I had to, I would go into it thinking, well, to, for it to be effective therapy, I need to think about everything fucked up someone did to me since the last time I went. Oh. Because that's all we would talk about. <laughs> Right. So then it's like I'm um, I'm going into therapy like, oh, should I need to remember what was everything that bothered me? And like now I don't go to therapy with that mindset. I kind of go into therapy with like it. I'm still thinking about what has been bothering me, what has been affecting me. But but from a more internalized standpoint. Right. So like for me, it's been trying to. So like the last two sessions, it's been trying to like really pinpoint what's the source of my anxiety. And so finally, after 12 years of going, when I like I, I asked her the right question. And she's like, oh, yeah, you're feeling that anxiety because you're trying to control things, <laughs> right? And, like, you're, and you're trying to control outcomes. Right. And, and it's like, okay, so why, why, you just t- why are you telling me this for the first time? Because as soon as I recognized it, literally that week, every time I felt, like, compelled to try to, like, control something, I just didn't, and I didn't feel the anxiety. That's right. <laughs> you know what I mean? That's so Very simple. nice, isn't it? And then— You just let go. Sometimes people think that's unca- they, you, they experience you as uncaring. When what you're really just saying is that's not my problem, right? You know, the, the, the wonderful phrase, not my monkey, not my circus. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. I love that phrase. I've been trying to get my middle daughter, Simone, who's 16, who's a wonderful, amazing human, like incredibly empathetic, incredibly aware of other people's emotions. But she's going to struggle, hopefully not for a long time, but for some period of her life, she's going to struggle with codependence. Right. So mm-hmm. codependency, she's because she's so aware of other people's emotions and mm-hmm. cares so much. And I've been trying to get her to adopt this mantra, not my monkey, not my circus. Is it clicking yet for her? I don't think so. I mean, I think, well, she's certainly aware. I think she's now aware of her own tendency toward codependency. Okay. Which is huge. But she's 16. So I think she's still wrapping her mind around what all that means and where the distinctions are between having boundaries and being caring and loving and empathetic. And so she's going to obviously learn all of those things as she continues to grow up. But when you're raising kids, you're trying to just put things in their minds that at some point they wake up one day and go, Oh, not my monkey, not my circus. I don't have to care about that. Like, I, I'm not a bad person if I don't care about that. Right. Or if I don't take responsibility for trying to fix it. Right. I mean, it took me 30 years. Right. <laughs> right. You know what I mean? But like, if, and I'm but still if, working on but it. But imagine if somebody, when you were 16, would have said, hey, Avi, you know, you're very empathetic. Yeah. I maybe would have, I probably could have caught it sooner. You're right? very aware of other people's emotions. You care a lot about other people's emotional states and what they're experiencing. You want to make their life better, mm-hmm. which is, these are all admir- admirable things. But sometimes you worry too much about the outcomes that you can't control. Yes. And you might want to think about this mantra, not my monkey, not my circus. And you'd be like, what does that mean? <laughs> and, then, and then when you were like 20, you might have, oh my gosh. <laughs> right? And maybe, and maybe, you, maybe you don't get there all the way. But maybe instead of 30, maybe you wake up to that when you're 26 and you save yourself pain in the ass. For sure. Now, you've obviously done a lot of therapy. So think about how much pain in the ass stuff you've saved yourself by discovering these things by 30. Right. Most people, or lots of people, don't discover these things until, they get their, until their first divorce. 
<laughs> or ever. Right. Or ever. Right. No, or ever. <laughs> or ever. But I'm going to circle this back to the, the idea of like a fair, you're talking like fair <laughs> deals, right? Like mm-hmm. something you were talking about. So, so then, so that was two sessions ago. So then last session, I'm like, okay, well, so how do I, what's the line between not trying to control things, but versus like strategizing and trying to prepare for outcomes that you want, <laughs> right? Like when it's like, so like if I'm going into a meeting, right. And I, and I want a particular outcome out of the meeting, mm-hmm. I could get into like, I could start getting anxiety trying to think through what do I do to get the outcome that I want. And, and the reason, I guess, I guess the reason that for so long I expected to be able to get the outcome that I want is because I know that I've already thought through trying to make it fair and something that's a win-win. So then to me, I always thought that if I'm competent, I could get them to see how it's a win-win. And if I'm not able to get the outcome that I want, it's due to something I did wrong or incompetence, right? And so I guess that's what I like finally realized and it clicked and where I'm like, no, it actually doesn't matter how confident you are. There's just some things you can't control. Even if you're trying to give, give someone a win-win opportunity, you know, and then I thought about it. I'm like, you've been in plenty of situations, right? And for me, you're as like as confident as they come Mm -hmm. and you're in situations all the time where you're trying to explain to somebody how something is a win-win opportunity and it doesn't mean it's going to happen every time or work out that way. Right. Yeah. I mean, a lot of this stuff goes back to the life benefit of sports psychology. And what I mean by that is if you're a person who has a lot of empathy and you couple that with a person who has a lot of rational thoughts, just all sorts of thoughts going through your mind and you're trying to discern the nature of reality and then project that into the future and try to understand like what life is and where you should or should not go and what, what imagination you should have for life. And all of those things just make for very complicated thought. But complicated thought is the enemy of present moment action. Mm-hmm. Successful present moment action. Mm-hmm, right? Mm-hmm. And, and so sports psychology, I remember I read a book in my early 20s called The Inner Game of Tennis very short book, but it was all about present moment living as an athlete. The notion that you don't allow yourself to get caught up in the outcome of the last play for much for, for any period of time beyond the moment between the ending of one play and the beginning of another. Mm-hmm. So it's fine. If you make an interception and you go sprinting down the sidelines and score a touchdown, do a dance. Mm-hmm. Be excited. You just did something amazing in, a, in, a, in one moment. And then as soon as the next whistle goes, then you just forget about it and you're on to the next. Mm-hmm. Same is true if you give up a touchdown. If you threw the interception. Or you throw the, yeah, you're exactly right. You, you, you threw the interception and you're the quarterback. And while that guy's running down the sideline, it's okay to cuss at yourself, bitch yourself out, you know, be pissed off, stomp around a little bit, you know, whatever, whatever you're going to do. But then when the whistle blows, you're on to the next play. Mm-hmm. And, and if you could do that, then you have the right psychology to actually achieve the highest levels of success because you, you're, you're relinquishing control 
of all the outcomes and you're focusing all of your energy effort on the present moment, which you can control. Now, if you're the quarterback who threw the interception, you didn't intend to throw an interception. Yeah. So you couldn't control that per se. But after the game, when you start doing your training the next day, you can remember that interception and have it be motivation for all of the training you're doing that might put you in a place where the next time you're throwing that same pass, you get it two feet higher out of the reach of the defender where only the, only the guy on your team can make the catch. Right. And, and so it's not that you forget, but you don't emotionally allow it to define you. Right. And then I, I think the other, but I think the aspect of it for me was, and I think it's the same for sports. It's, it's, you have to accept and understand, no, I do have that skill set. I've trained myself for this. And I'm ready for the moment. It doesn't mean everything's going to happen the way that I want it to. But, but I think a lot of my anxiety was, was because I felt most of my life I've been f- like made to feel incompetent in some ways. Whether it was like within my family dynamic or a school system that didn't fit my style of learning. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and, and, and then it's like I, now I just need to trust that. I am competent, right? And probably more than confident, right? Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And far more and, than competent. And so I could release this anxiety and this tension of going into things and thinking that I need to figure out how to control it because I, I should be able to just trust myself, right? And go into these moments, allow myself to be in the moment because I do trust myself. Yeah. Right. And then rather than trying to like Well, a couple lessons. Yeah. So when you're smart, you can convince people of stuff that they otherwise wouldn't do. You can convince them to do things that they otherwise wouldn't do. The danger in that is that as time goes on, they might have resentment. They might not actually know how to handle emotionally what they agreed to. They might not know how to take responsibility. Right. Right. And For so, the outcome. and so, <laughs> and so. For me, when I was younger, when I knew I was right, I was determined yeah. to get other people to agree and do what I believed was right. And as I've gotten older, I, I've experienced the benefit of being able to say to yourself, I'm going to open the door. I'm going to tell them all the reasons why XYZ is the right path. I'm going to take that path. And if they don't join me, then that might be for the best. Right. Right. Because what you don't want to do is be on a journey with people that don't want to be there or didn't understand the cost. 100%. Now, it's easier to say as you get richer because you're – you, you don't need other people's money or will or whatever. Like you can just make stuff happen easier yourself and you don't have as much risk of not making things happen. Right. Because if you don't make something happen today, your life doesn't really change. Right. You can make it happen tomorrow. Right. And so all of the meetings become 
less critical. Right. And I'm not, you know, I, I sometimes don't know if that's good, bad, or indifferent because there's something so wonderful about being under the gun and having to perform. Uh-huh. There's something really wonderful about that psychologically. And you, and you lose some of that eye of the tiger the more comfortable you get. Mm-hmm. You don't have to, but then you have, you have to willfully engage it. Yeah. Rather than have it just be like part of your survival in the jungle. Yeah. Well, I remember you telling me about like how having children really made you like have that eye of that tiger even more. Right. hundred percent. Yeah. Because, you know, up until that point, it's kind of an idea, right? The idea of, I want to have success. But when you're just a dude, or maybe I'm just a dude with a wife or a girlfriend or whatever, you could always just you know move to the Caribbean and be a bartender, mm-hmm. or you're not going to starve. <laughs> mm-hmm. There's ten thousand ways that you could you know survive. But the moment you have children, you have a purpose that goes way beyond. You you have a you you have a, a felt purpose. Mm-hmm way beyond what you ever felt before. Right. And that's, that's really wonderful and powerful. It doesn't alleviate all the other life stressors of trauma that can disrupt your spiritual journey. Mm-hmm. Because that's a primary, the primary problem of trauma is just massive disruption. Mm-hmm. So it doesn't, it doesn't solve all those things, but it it gives you a felt need to be responsible that I didn't experience before I had kids. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So maybe we should get into the intro a little bit. Sure. Kind of the, what we plan to talk about. So yeah. on this podcast, we, we talk about people's journeys typically, but there's, and their journeys into their career, but there's some pillars that I try to land on if they're there. And, and find in people's stories. And one of those is kind of the spiritual part of your journey. And if you could recognize any magic or the, the feeling of God, I guess, it, that, where you just feel the touch there, which I think is something we should talk about too. Cause I, I'm curious. Cause I know your, your concept of God is a lot more hands off, right? Like God isn't really like, you know, intervening, intervening. Right. So I'm wondering if, if even though you feel that God isn't intervening, if there's still, if you could still find God in certain moments or if it's mutually exclusive because you feel that he doesn't intervene if you, if you can't see him in moments of the journey. Well, there's a difference between intervening and participating. And what I mean by that is I think that the voice of God is active in the world every day. And more importantly, the voice of God is active in our souls every day. Mm -hmm. And while the voice of God I've experienced is very quiet and not forceful. Mm Mm-hmm it doesn't mean that God is absent 
Mm-hmm. So when I think of this notion that God doesn't intervene, what I really mean is God isn't willfully determining. God is, God is participating mm-hmm. and willing to engage relationally and whisper. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. But God right. is unwilling to do it for I don't me. think in my in any any part of the Carlos story where I feel like God is there, it, it doesn't feel I don't think there's any moment where I feel like there was like intervention from God, but there's there's been this certain sense of like when things seem like they're going wrong, they it always it always works out for for the best. You know what I mean? And and I guess that could be less of like 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 a force of God and, but less of that, but more of maybe just the, the design, right? Like God's, God's design allowing for certain things to play out the way that they're supposed to. Right. Well, I hope that that continues for you for your whole life. <laughs> okay. Well, we should, all right, we should get to that. Cause I hope that, I hope that for you. Yeah. Cause obviously then you get to the part there's like things seem to go get so fucked up. Right. So I think you've experienced some of that in work, but yeah, I've, I've experienced, so I've experienced a lot of what you're describing and, and early in my career, really, really my entire career, I felt like I was the hero of the story that wherever I showed up, there would be answers and there would be positive outcomes Mm -hmm that would result in people making money, people being happier. And so then I was shocked whenever people weren't happy because I'm like, what are you not happy about? <laughs> Look, I'm, I'm showing up with all these answers, solutions, mm-hmm. ideas. Like it's your lucky day. Like <laughs> I'm, I'm here to make everything better. And I truly believe that. And, mm-hmm. and, and it would play out that way for the most part, right? It played out that way for a long time. And then I had some experiences that were absolutely detached from reality, right? Just like where it almost felt like the opposite, where I had done all these, what I what felt like really smart things, right things, fair things. And it was almost as if God, it felt like the whole universe conspired against me to create outcomes that were impossible if it were not for God, God intervening. Mm-hmm. That's what it felt you know, because it was so, oh, I felt like God intervened for the, for neg- the negative, the negative, right? Because it, because they're so outrageous. Some of these outcomes were so outrageous. They're just purely insane. Right. And I could come up with all the reasons why it wasn't, you know, it's not God's fault, but when you try to tie all the strings together, you're like, how is this possible? How how is how is this outcome possible in a world governed by a good and rational God? Okay, what are the different? So, what are like the different ways of trying to, if still believing in God and and feeling like God intervened? Well, you don't. I don't. You don't necessarily believe that God intervened to let the bad happen. I don't want to believe that because I don't want to have to try to philosophically account for God in any way being responsible for evil. Right. But I like, but I really struggle with the story of Job, right? Who's mm-hmm. you know, this good guy, solid citizen that Lucifer 
<laughs> yeah, tell the, tell right? the story. Lucifer the... approaches God and says, hey, I see your servant Job. He seems like a really good fellow. But he's only good and only worships you because everything goes his way. And God says, no, no, no. Job <laughs> is a good fellow. And Job loves me and respects me. And I, I have a relationship with Job that goes far beyond all the goodness that I brought into his life. And Lucifer says, bullshit. And this, this, this story is okay. so fucking insane. And this is the part that gets really dark for me because then God says, it's not bullshit. Lucifer says, let's see what happens when I take everything away. And God says, go ahead. And they just fuck up Job's life. Including his wife and children. Yes, right? wife and children. I think his wife and children die. He, he gets boils all over his body. He loses all of his wealth. His friends come around him and say, what have you done wrong, Job? God clearly doesn't love you anymore. <laughs> oh and, and Job's like, I haven't done anything. I'm just, you know, I, I still love God. I, I, I can't explain this stuff. Uh-huh. And they said, listen, Job, you should just curse God and die. And Job's like, I'm not going to do it. Uh-huh. Right, and so he holds his he holds the line like he he God, truly God wins his bet with Lucifer. God wins his bet with Lucifer, and Job is eventually restored beyond measure, right? Like beyond everything that he had to begin with. But the suffering, the level of suffering that was sanctioned by God <laughs> in the life of Job, now it wasn't directly it wasn't directly executed by God. The suffering it doesn't seem, but God sanctioned Lucifer to cause pain and suffering and destruction in the life of Job. And it seems like he did it for sport on a bet, (laughs) right? The usual Mortimer, right? (laughs) Right. And and so then you ask yourself, how many times have God and Lucifer played these games? How many times has Lucifer, this piece of shit that he is, convinced God to allow him to, do whatever. So I guess, right. I mean, what if it, what if it was Lucifer who went to God and said, I know you love the Jews. Uh huh. Oh, the Holocaust. Right. Right. So, and, and God says, what? Try it. Try him. Yeah. Test him. Like what? Yeah. I I don't know how to make sense of all that part of our, I guess the only way I can make sense of it. And it's something that I guess I've, I've wondered before just on like zero principles, the ground zero principles is uh, first principles. Sorry. Is the idea that God doesn't think that there's any meaning to our suffering here is the only way I could account for it. I don't believe that's true. Well, Tell me what you mean by that, that God doesn't believe that there, there's, there's no meaning there, to our suffering. Because there's an, there, there's an ultimate meaning to everything here. So you're that actually God saying, can understand. you're saying that the suffering is essential to our meaning. No. Essential to the soul formation. That would be the e- ultimate meaning. Either that, I think either, either that, there, that there is something to the suffering. I think that there's only two ways to account for it, I think. Uh-huh. Or that the suffering is meaningless. It, it, he that it it doesn't matter what 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 the suffering we go through here doesn't really matter and it's partially because we can't grasp ultimately why we're here okay but see you're saying different things there so when you say that the suffering doesn't matter but then you follow it up with that we don't understand what i'm hearing you actually say is the suffering has meaning 
that we don't understand. Potentially. So it's not that the suffering doesn't have meaning. It has profound meaning, possibly. Possibly, yeah. And it's, and so, but, but we don't understand. Right, it. right, right. I guess it's not, it's not, <laughs> it's not meaningful in a, ne- in a negative way, I guess, right, is what I'm saying. It's not. Ah, so you're, right. what you're saying is it's, it, it's not indicative of the ultimate outcome. Yes. Or the ultimate purpose. Yes. I mean, that's certainly a psychologically palatable way to process suffering if you can somehow believe that it has meaning beyond anything that you can comprehend and that you can not overthink it and try not to dwell on it. If you can. Because out of some sort of faith. If you can. A faith in the universe that the universe constructs greater meaning. Yes. Beyond all of the suffering that we endure. Yes. That's, I mean, there's a lot of people who have argued this lot in philosophy, theology. Obviously, you have to believe in God to even begin to have these conversations, right? <laughs> right? So if you don't believe in God, then everything is meaningless anyway. And so it, your suffering has no meaning. Your happiness has no meaning. Everything you experience is just an illusion of meaning mm-hmm. emotionally because there's no foundations for anything and everything is dust, right? That's... So to have any of these philosophical conversations about wrestling, yes, it, with, starts, with, it starts. It starts with believing that the universe it's has all meaning. Mean, yeah, because it's meaningless anyway. The other thing it, is, is that you, you you also have to start with the belief that the universe has personality, because if the universe doesn't have personality, then there's nobody to blame, or nobody to converse with, or nobody to take issue with regarding suffering. Mm-hmm. Right. So if the universe is just like, so lots of people like to talk about the universe just being energy, mm-hmm. like, like passionless, oh, yeah. purposeless, impersonal that. energy. And that somehow we manifest these personalities out of thin air, that somehow we have something that the universe as a whole doesn't have. Mm-hmm. That doesn't make any sense. To no. Me. And I value, I have too high a regard for our emotions to, to not value the suffering, to not value yeah, the suffering and the happiness. Like, I, just to not value our emotions doesn't make any sense to me. So I don't think that our emotions are somehow just here to trick us or deceive us into believing that there's meaning. Well, um, so anyway, so let, let's start with this foundational question, which is we're going to first, we're foundational principles. We're going to say there's a universe. We want there to be meaning. Mm-hmm a foundational principle of there possibly being meaning is that there's a God who has personality mm-hmm. at the center of all things. Mm-hmm. You have to start with that. Otherwise mm-hmm. the conversation is completely meaningless. That's where we're starting. Right. right. Yeah. And so then you get into this, you know, age old question, which is how could a good and loving God, how could a good and loving God allow so much evil in the world? How much, how could a good and loving God have, have allow so much suffering? How could a God that claims to be the father of humanity allow his children to suffer such terrible fates. And these are the, these are the most difficult theological questions. Well, I I think the, I think the first place where we might depart, which, which is why we might have different views on it is like, is I think, I think it takes us kind of fast forwards us to after death a little bit because because there's an idea of is everything that happens here 
the the most meaningful thing that happens to us and the only thing that happens to us or I hope not right I don't want to believe that but you but you believe but you do you want to talk through your belief a little bit so that people understand of what 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 happens after yeah what do you want to know what do you think happens after death like well so again these are all theories obviously I don't know and nobody knows what happens after death other than maybe the dead, but they're not speaking to us. So everybody's ideas are on this are theories. But my theory on this is that when we die, that we go into a state that is like soul sleep. Mm-hmm. Where just like when we go to sleep at night and we wake up in the morning, we don't really know. We don't really have a sense of the passage of time if we slept well. Mm-hmm. Right. There's many nights if you sleep well that you close your eyes and you wake up and it's morning and whatever amount of time was in between felt like a second. Mm-hmm. And so I believe in something similar relative to I don't believe that there is an alternate an alternate reality, an alternate plane of being that somehow you just pass from this plane to the next. Mm-hmm. Because I don't believe in in layered reality that there's like a heaven somewhere, somewhere there's a heaven that is a part outside and distinct from this universe. Yeah. I, cause I, I feel, I think I, I guess I sense that it's because you have a problem with it would, it would make our time here a little less meaningful. And I think you take issue with that. Well, it would just mean that somehow there was a, an entire existence on another plane that was a society that was the society of heaven or the society of hell, but there were an alternate reality that's being held in, in place by the universe, by, by the breath of God, by the voice of God being held in existence such that there are people gathered in heaven, having conversations like humans would do. If humans exist, then they do things like what we do on earth. But what if it's nothing like, uh-huh. I, I guess my my assumption is it would be nothing like what we experience here. Like there wouldn't be conversation. Well, are there are there personalities? Are there separate and distinct people? Separate and distinct souls. Separate and distinct souls. How do they communicate? Okay, I guess. I, so I well, I I have a belief or a theory. I guess a little bit. So here on Earth. We're bound by our senses, right? So we rely on like look, touch, feel, taste, smell. And that's all like an interface that that ultimately translates into feelings, right? So everything gets synthesized into a feeling. So if you look at something beautiful, it turns into a feeling. You eat something delicious, it turns into a feeling, right? And so every – so. It's like an interface that then turns into feelings. I guess I think that there's a Sensations. possibility. I'm a, I'd like, I want to make a distinction between a sensation and an emotion. Right. Feelings. Okay. Feelings, emotions, sensation. Yeah, sensation. Right. So I think there might be a plane where you don't need the senses anymore to get the sensations. Right. So the, 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 the ultimate thing that is getting synthesized. So Are maybe you, the, maybe the love I feel for you or, and the, the, and what I feel when I have a great conversation with you, mm-hmm. 
on this plane, I might float around to you and I might feel that, but we actually don't even need to talk to feel the connection. But do we have a distinction between us? I don't know if you would like, I think there is, but you wouldn't necessarily feel it that way or, or recognize it. Right. Because do we have linearity? Like, do we, do we know linearity the difference of like between, time? Yeah. The difference between the conversation that we're having and the conversation we had yesterday. No, probably not. Right. So you don't think there'd be linearity? Well, I mean, think about the so, consequences. So, okay, some of this theory is because I've is because I've like slipped into a place before, mm-hmm. right? Like mm-hmm. before sleep, mm-hmm. I've slipped into a place where mm-hmm. I go into a plane that's unrecognizable, mm-hmm. and it's not my like you. You see, there's some visual aspect, but it's not like seeing. Mm-hmm. And 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 in those moments, I think to answer maybe because maybe I'm answering your question wrong about linearity. Mm-hmm. When I slip into that. There, there's a journey that I'm following and understanding while I'm there. But as soon as I wake up, that journey, I'm not able to put that journey into words or understand it. But when I was in it, I understood it and felt it deeply. Mm-hmm. Right? So all, all, what, I would, what I would postulate is that there is no journey that is not linear. Okay, so then then I would say I answered your question wrong. There probably there is linearity. There has to be linearity. Yeah, linearity. There has to in order to have. I I would postulate that for any two beings to have a relationship, there needs to be linearity. There has to be linearity. Yeah, fair, fair. I would also postulate for any two beings to have a relationship, there has to be separate and distinct notions and experiences of who they are. Uh huh. Otherwise, they don't have a relationship. Well, if, I think I think that is also true of the of a journey. If I'm feeling a journey, that journey felt personal to me. Correct. Right. So, so if you want life to be a journey, and if you want to share that journey, then you have to believe in linearity and separate, distinct people. Mm-hmm. So, if your notion of heaven is separate and distinct people that don't have bodies. Mm-hmm but have some other form mm-hmm. that delineates them and makes them distinct from each other. Then I would say that's possible, but it also, I would argue is a classic mind body dualism that might even be kind of Gnostic in a hatred for the body as some sort oh. of disparagement of the body in a platonic sense. Like, so Plato believed that the world of forms and ideas was somehow greater than the world that we live in with, with physicality, that somehow this was like a descent and that was an ascent uh-huh. and that somehow we would eventually escape these prisons that were our bodies. And I just don't believe that. I don't believe that, but I, but I, but I don't believe that the universe put us in prisons. Right. I don't believe I don't understand why the universe would give us bodies in yeah, this world I, look, if somehow this was like a lesser form of life that we were here like some fu- sort of simulation. About. It's some sort of it's, it's some worse sort of than a, a simulation. Right. It's like a prison. Why would you send us to prison if you want us to learn how to live? I don't understand that. Right. What would be the if yeah, what would be the purpose of sending us into this form? Just bypass that. But send me to the place that you want me to learn to live in. Mm-hmm. Send me to the form that you want me to learn to relate in. Send me to the place where I can actually test my soul, find out the truth of my soul, get to know other people, and have real relationships. Right. So, that, but, so you get stuck at then. Then, how 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 does our experience here have 
purpose what that isn't intention? somehow fucked up. That, yeah. What was the intention of the universe by creating us in the first place? Creating us in this form, in this place, in a universe that so far, so far it appears that a universe that is vast beyond all our understanding, where our earth is a tiny little speck, like <laughs> one grain of sand on all the beaches of the universe, all the beaches in the, in the, on the entire earth, the universe, if the universe was all the beaches of the entire earth, our earth is one grain of sand, it appears. Mm-hmm. And yet, as far as we could tell so far, only that one grain of sand has life. Mm-hmm. That's fucking weird. I don't yeah, know why. I weird. mean, it's fucking weird. And, <laughs> and you can hate it, and you cannot understand it, but so far, it seems to be true. Right. Now, I'm open to, to it not being true. That'd be interesting to learn. But yeah. in the meantime, I'm not going to make up things that I don't know. Right. But somehow, the universe saw fit to put us on this rock floating in massive nothingness and encouraged us or, or created us in a way that we wanted to relate to each other and go on journeys together mm-hmm. and learn from one another but also created us in such a way that we could be heinously terrible. We could, we could be cruel to each other that you, that you can't be in the, in the plane that I'm talking about. <laughs> right? like, well, but well, that's, uh-huh. that's, here's another question in the plane that you're talking about. Is it that you're incapable of cruelty or is it that you, you wouldn't just, choose you wouldn't that you wouldn't choose? choose maybe there, there's, there would almost be no incentive for it, but like, but Right there, I get like in this world, there's there are some fucked up incentives. There, there could be. You could choose. Obviously, people choose to have fucked up incentives. So there's something. There's something driving that, right? Well, we'll, we're certainly living. However long humans have had sentient awareness, right? Like Mm -hmm. just the self awareness of their own thoughts and actions. However long humans have had that then there was some sort of moral culpability. And there was some form of, form of consequence that is far different than animals eating each other. Right? Clearly, animals are really cruel to each other. Mm-hmm. But it doesn't seem to be out of their nature or somehow corrupting them mm-hmm. as beings. Whereas the however many generations of humans that have been cruel to each other, we, we are, we've inherited a world of thousands of generations of cruelty. Right. And so it's really hard to sort through what is the nature of reality and oh. what is the, 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 result, the of, result of all that cruelty. Uh-huh. That's very, very difficult. And then it makes it very difficult to live like a citizen of heaven in a world that is so full of cruelty when oftentimes non-cruelty is punished and cruelty is rewarded. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. But if those were the incentives that were set up by our cruel ancestors of one form or another for many generations, then it's very difficult for us to be born into that water 
But where, but whatever starting point you go to, even if you go back generations, there, there still had to be an incentive for it. I don't know. What was the incentive for Cain to kill Abel other than just anger? Well, the, but the, but the world has anger, right? Like the, like, Absolutely. so a part of the design is that that anger exists, right? So I don't know. It's, it's, it's still a product of the design. Well, I think you have to make it, you know, somehow you have to make a distinction between righteous indignation. So the good anger, like the anger of the universe. Okay. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Right. In the sense that I want to believe. So I believe that the universe has emotion. I believe that God has emotion. And that I believe ultimately the only thing that will matter in all of our existence is whether or not God likes us. Whether or not, mm-hmm. right? That's it. Like, but God it, emotionally, but so, but, if so, God, God emotionally likes you, then you're invited into heaven on on many levels. Like, so it's just it's truly just like He knows you and He likes you, and if He knows you and doesn't like you, then He just doesn't want to be around you, and so then you're not invited. And do you believe that God knows us? Or God has to learn about us? I think that the answer is both. I think God knows us in some sense that he holds us in existence. But at the same time, God is learning about us because he infuses us with freedom. And so the evolution of our lives is not known to God. Like God doesn't know where we're going with certainty. Because I don't, I believe that ontologically the future doesn't exist. But he doesn't know everything that that you're going to do, everything that's going to happen. But does he, to your core, does he know you, or is there still always something to learn? To your core, he knows you, and yet you can surprise him. So, what if all of this is a way for God to learn about us? I I think that's probably actually like a, a very good way to think about it because if you, if you try to break down the reasons why a God, not the God, but a God might create, then most of them are not great answers. But the best answer is that God created because he wanted to share mm-hmm. because he wanted to relate because he wanted to invite us into relationship, invite us into friendship, invite us into family. Mm -hmm. And if that was the purpose of creation, then it would make perfect sense that the universe would be designed such that he might actually get to know us and figure out who he liked and who he didn't. And what if we need to experience suffering for him to learn about us? Well, I mean, it's, it's, it's not, it's not impossible to imagine that. Right. And, but, but it is awkward when you put yourself, if you put yourself in the position where you say as a parent, would you, is there ever a situation where you truly would welcome the suffering of your child? That's a very difficult emotional place. To be in, and and if you think of God as like the father, your your ultimate father. But there, but there's as much as God is our ultimate father, and as much as you could 
draw correlations between how you treat your kids and how God would treat us, there's one separating factor. And that is that we birth our children and we try to teach them, but but we try to teach them as best as we can. But at the end of the day, we don't really know why we're here. And only God knows that answer. That's right. So he could run that test in a different way than we might be comfortable to do with our own kids. Yeah. what What I would say is I'm very comfortable with the notion that a prerequisite for real relationships is freedom, freedom of will. And that part of the risk that God had to take in making humans was infusing us with so much power that we might abuse it and create chaos. But that risk was he was willing to take and he's willing to endure all the suffering that was created by our ill will and our, and our just mistreatment of each other because he has so much hope that, that somehow some of us, there's no chance all of us, but some of us will become the kind of beings that he likes and wants to have fellowship with, mm-hmm. like that wants to enjoy and wants to feast with and laugh with and, and lavish beautiful things upon the way that we like to lavish beautiful things on our friends and family. And, and, that, and that the only way to actually find out or the only way to make beings that, that he, might, he might find out required a willingness to endure a lot of suffering, not born from God creating suffering or God infusing suffering, but born from God holding us in existence with so much power that we can really, really fuck it up. But he's not willing to fix it because if he fixes it, then the experiment is over mm-hmm. and he loses the tr- true relationships. He loses true relationships with beings that actually have real power. Mm-hmm. Now that power is only held in existence by God and it's only held in existence by God in this theory by, because of hope. So it's not that God couldn't cease all suffering. God could, but he'd have to end the experiment, which would mean that we'd all have to cease to exist on some level. Or at least we'd all have to cease to exist who hadn't evolved to a place where we were not incapable of cruelty, but just beyond a willingness to engage in cruelty. So I think the only thing, like, as we're talking that out, and I, I think that that kind of goes with the this is a test theory a little bit, but I think the part that doesn't make sense to me is so is let's say let's say I'm here for the test and I, and I ace the test, right. And I, and, mm-hmm. and God loves me and That's wants it. to embrace me. That's it. But yeah. the, like, I guess where it falls apart for me is even if that was the case, I feel like the only reason that I was able to pass the test was because God gave me the ability to <laughs> like, like at my core, I got to come in here ma- with the right makeup where I could get through and pass the test. I guess, I guess that would still feel God given and a choice. So I don't know how to reconcile that. Well, I'm unwilling to believe in any form of predestination. Not predestination, but, but who you are, your makeup, right? Like, but who or do you, you think, are you think, are you, I guess you think that that's actually just biological chance. Like, so, so he set evolution in motion and biological chance true biological chance is why we're here and then we get to pass the test well i mean there is some biological chance but obviously you carry the genetic code of all of your 
ancestors. Everyone. And so every choice that your ancestors make in who they procreate with, you are the result of that 10,000 generations of sexual partners. Uh-huh. Right. Uh-huh. And, and not, you know, some sexual partners obviously don't result in, in procreation. Thank God. But, <laughs> uh, but you are the result of many generations of humans choosing sexual partners that then resulted in procreation. Mm-hmm. Now you carry all of their genetic code and in that genetic code is good, bad and ugly. And we don't totally understand all of the ramifications of our choices on our DNA and our, and in, in the proteins that surround our DNA and turn that, you know, that turn genetic inclination on and off. And we can make choices in our own lives that then turn genetic inclination on and off, but then we can pass to our children or not pass to our children. So all that to say that I think God put us, you know, certain things in motion but I think you only exist because of some amount of genetic chance or genetic choice, whichever you want to think about, of all the past humans that engaged in procreation. Mm-hmm. And so if your parents didn't get together, there's no Avi. Right. Or some other th- being. Yeah. But then even, and then even it's, then which sperm actually makes it through? There's, there's that part of Agreed. it too, right? And, so, and, and we don't have any real understanding as to how much that is chance. It's hard to even understand how God can hold everything in existence but not control everything, right? Because obviously, like, if you hold everything in existence, you can then say, all right, all sperm cease to move except for that one. <laughs> right? And so, like... So, so I don't, I don't know. I don't know where those choices are for God, but what I do want in my philosophical explanations is I want to have theories that always exonerate God from evil because I don't want to believe in a universe where at the core is a God that would willfully implement evil and suffering. I'm, I'm, I can endure the notion that God endures evil and suffering with the hope of creating beings that can have a relationship with God. Mm-hmm. That I can, that's palatable to me. But any explanation that has God at the center of choices that somehow exclude people, make other people suffer, make life generally heinous at the will of God, those are not philosophical explanations that help me in any way. And so I'm not, I'm unwilling to entertain them as truth unless they, if they just are truth, then I'll find that out at some point. But I don't want to believe that in theory because it's, 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 I find it to be dislikable. Mm -hmm. Does that make sense? Yeah. So I, I have to believe, I have to believe in a, philosophically, I have to believe that every human being has the possibility to become the kind of being that God actually likes. Everyone has a chance at that. Everyone. I have to believe that because the alternative is too bleak and reprehensible. But I think to me, it it looks like some people are born with an inability to ever achieve that. Well, for sure. (laughs) Right. So for sure, I'm willing to say, sure. But I'm, I'm willing to say that 
there is a continuum of humans. Some who, you know, we don't know all the reasons, like what are all the culmination of choices of your, of your, of your progenitors that led to your soul? Mm-hmm. I don't know. Right. I don't know. And I'm not willing to blame all of your bad traits on them. Mm-hmm. And I'm not willing to give them credit for all of your good traits, but somehow they influence those things. Mm-hmm. But yet the influence doesn't make them responsible. They, I mean, they are responsible for whatever they did. Right. But they've given you now a genetic code and a, and a certain starting block. Mm-hmm. Some people are more advanced. Some people are farther behind. Some people have huge set things in their way, like huge obstacles to overcome. Some people have a lot less obstacles to overcome, but wherever they start, I have to believe that there is a possibility that they could become beings that God actually liked. Unless you think that the sins of the fathers on some level were so heinous that then you have generations that were just automatically disliked by God. But it wasn't because God made them that way. It was because their forefathers were so evil that they just now are generations of evil. Mm -hmm. That's possible. I'm willing to entertain that. But I would... I would then feel like God wasn't being as fair to the generations that just inherited pure evil. Right. That they the generations who inherited pure evil were less culpable than the generations that created the evil. Right. But that's, you know, that's for God to sort out. Yeah. And I can't know that. So then in, in my life, I want to embrace a theory that I can actually apply. And I want to apply a theory that all humans are capable of becoming the kind of beings that God might actually like. But, and when you say that, do you mean that generationally? Like even, even if you might be born with the wrong makeup, <laughs> you have the chance to procreate and maybe create something that eventually down the line could get to the right place. No, I don't know how it works. I just want to believe. But remember that a lot of belief is choice. There's, yeah. there's very few things that we know absolutely. And so we're often confronted with many possible solutions or many possible ideas that could be true. And what we choose to believe has huge impact on what we choose, how we choose to live. Yeah. And so then if we are being really self-aware and we know that we choose our belief, then we should choose belief that actually results in or, or makes possible a life that we think would be worth living. Yeah, it would sound to me that like <laughs> if your beliefs are leading to better outcomes for you, then maybe, well, first of all, that's a win on its own because you're win getting better outcomes. Yeah. But then second, and then you have, you have to also wonder, well, if my beliefs are leading to better circumstances, does that mean that my beliefs are more likely to be correct? Well, now we're back to the beginning of this conversation, which is there's a lot of good people making good choices where shitty things happen to them. And I don't have great explanations for that. It'd be so much easier if making good choices always resulted in your life getting better. I don't mean that everything would play out right for you in that way. I just meant more so like, like, okay, if I choose to see God in my journey when things work out, it's just a more, it's just a more enjoyable journey. You know what I mean? It's like I'm 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 enjoying it a lot more and there's more comfort than 
if alternatively I had no belief in, there was no like kind of significant belief behind what I was doing. And all I was doing was trying to drive this business to just make as much money as I could. And there was no, there was no like larger, greater thing that's happening where it feels where I feel like I'm getting signs and I'm on the right journey. You know what I mean? It's just, so when I'm enjoying it more, and I, and I, and I, and because I'm choosing to believe in God at certain points, I, I could, I could feel it. I could, I could feel the presence of God. I'm just a lot happier. So if I'm a lot happier believing in that, then does that, does that mean that I'm on the right track by believing in it? I don't believe that happiness per se means that you're on a better path because of Job. <laughs> <laughs> Right, but so but God seems to think that Job won at the end. <laughs> but you, but when you hear that story, you're like, "That's a fucked up story." Fucked up story. But the story isn't isn't necessarily meant to be interpreted as fucked up because apparently there's this big win at the end. So other pu- other people view it. What about Job's kids who all die? <laughs> you know, I think there's there's so much pain and suffering. I think it 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 does, it, it boggles the mind. Right, the notion of Job boggles the mind. Uh-huh. And there are a lot of theologians who say, well, humble yourself. God is God and you are not. And all the, you know, those are all true. Like I don't hold myself in existence. I don't claim to hold myself in existence. I don't have a lot of power that wasn't given to me by the universe. Mm-hmm. So I don't have a leg to stand on to really fight with God about however the nature of reality is. But I do have emotions towards suffering and evil. And I think we're just remiss to not honor those emotions because I believe that the emotions were given to us by a very intelligent universe and they were given to us to help guide us. So then I'm trying then- I mean, happiness, I believe a hundred percent should result in gratitude. Like when you are happy for sure, you should wake up every day and praise God. Right. And, and give thanks to God and say, God, I know that I don't deserve happiness like I don't, have, I, don't have a right, a I don't have a right to happiness i know that you could do a deal with lucifer and i my suffering could be <laughs> oh, beyond just measure a million but you know different what? random but today things, yeah. but today i'm happy and life is good and i'm thankful and i'm just a little guy here I'm just yes. a little guy but i'm grateful to you that i exist today that may not always be true yeah, because every day when you wake up and you're happy, there's a million different random things that could happen to you that would completely crush your happiness. That's exactly <laughs> there's, right. There's like unlim- almost unlimited ways. Mm-hmm. And the fact that you're living a day where that's not happening, where you're not getting crushed, then it's fucking amazing. You enjoy it. Right? I, I, I think often about how many incredible, amazing days, experiences, how much happiness I've experienced in my life joy, abundance. I have four incredible children. I mean, like I have all these blessings that are beyond measure. And if I was to die tomorrow, my life has been full. Mm-hmm. So every day is a gift. Like, and every day was a gift before I had those things, but I've experienced so much goodness that I don't deserve one more day of amazing life. Mm-hmm. But yet I get it. Here I am today. Mm-hmm. We're sitting in your beautiful home overlooking the beautiful Southern California mountains, having a wonderful conversation with somebody that is my dear friend that I love deeply. I mean, life is good. Mm-hmm. It's incredible, mm-hmm. but we don't, we don't have any control over what tomorrow looks like. 
No. I mean, we, we think we do and we do the best we can to like plan our lives and make our lives. And, and I think there's, there is honor in our choices, but, but we're not, we're not do any of these things. And there's a lot of people that don't get all these things that, that haven't had the blessings that we, we've been, we've been able to have in our lives yeah. that are, you know, days and days of joy. There's people that, they're mo- the, the majority of their human existence is suffering. Yeah, that's true. Right. I don't, you're right. I don't know how to reconcile that. Right. Because I think, so you and I have it good. And we know that there's suffering that we've experienced and we know that there's suffering coming <laughs> like, but ultimately regardless of that suffering that is inevitable, we still know like overall we've been really lucky. We've had it really good. There's some people that, but it doesn't make our suffering feel less painful just because other people have more suffering. No, that's not what I was trying to say. Uh, Yeah. I just, I was trying to, I was trying to say like, is there a way to reconcile if some people's, some people whose lives are mostly made of suffering, but I think that there's some truth to, I think people are, are great at regardless of circumstances. Where you and I would view it as shit, that's a lot of suffering. That's a lot of hardship. Where there's people that are still able to find gratitude and happiness in their lives, right? Regardless of circumstance. Well, just like there's always somebody who's richer, there's also always somebody who's suffering more. But take away the comparison part, right? right. I'm not talking about comparison. I'm, I'm, I'm saying like... Do you, do you think some people get bad shakes where life just, they can't find any, they can't find anything that like positive in their lives or, or, or not enough, not enough that it's like net neutral or net positive? Well, my life experience would tell me if you're asking me the question, have I ever met people that seem like they're just completely unhappy? No, 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 no. I think, I think we can agree that anybody could be unhappy. People could have things that are way that, that that by some calculation could be things that are greater than anything we possess and they will not be as happy as you and I are, right? So I guess what I'm trying to get at is some people could have the wrong approach no matter what they have and some people could have the right approach regardless of the things that they don't possess or regardless of the suffering and the hardships that they face. I, you have to believe in that if you believe in freedom. You have to believe in the possibility of every human being having the capacity to either be the most amazing giant of a soul or the most de minimis nothingness of a soul. Mm -hmm. And those capacities have to both exist as possibilities in every human. And so, yes, I believe that it's theoretically possible. You have to believe this, that people can descend to a place where they can't find anything joyful mm-hmm. and they just suffer and hate their life, hate their existence, have no delight. And I think that there's, I think there's examples most likely of people that we could look at their lives on the surface and think, wow, that seems like a fucked up, like how, how could you live? Like, how are, how are you like waking up every day? wanting to live another day. And then there's people that do under fucked up circumstances, find a way to still enjoy life. 
<laughs> right? Like, well, that's all born out of hope. The only way you can endure pain and suffering well, to endure it well, uh-huh. is because you have a hope that somehow tomorrow or the day after tomorrow or the day after the day after tomorrow is going to be better. And that somehow you're going to be able to dig yourself out of this pit of despair. Mm-hmm. Otherwise, you just like, that's what, you know, that's back again. We're back to Job. Job, just curse God and die. Mm-hmm. Like you're never getting out of this pit. So you should just give up all hope and, and just stop the suffering. Like mm-hmm. why, why suffer another day? Mm-hmm. And Job's answer, I mean, is commendable in the sense that Job basically said, I'll suffer another day because I don't know if tomorrow's the day I stop suffering. Mm-hmm. And if you have that kind of mentality, then you can, you can suffer with hope. And in so doing, find some delight mm-hmm. because all delight is really born out of hope. Mm-hmm. All delight. Without hope, there's no joy. So, so where do you think, I think you might have a better grasp right now on like where we're dissenting on the, on our stances on suffering or where. So I, I think my stance is a little more like the sufferings just a part of the deal and, 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 where I, I think the suffering is meaningless in a way. Me, is meaningless the right word on what I'm saying? No. Yeah, what, what you're, you, you, you have an undeveloped philosophical system around suffering. But practically, you're willing to endure it and embrace it and just accept that it's part of life, right? And, and you don't want to overthink it because you don't want to get bogged down by it. And so you move through it, which practically is a wonderful position to be in, right? But it's, but the way that you're approaching it is like a Stoic or a Buddhist. But it, philosophically, Stoics and Buddhists don't have good philosophical answers. They just have practical solutions mm-hmm, to mm-hmm. Human, human experience that they're trying to figure out how to process human experience in a way that is palatable, right? But that's not a developed philosophical system. So, and, and by a developed philosophical system, all I mean is logically consistent that then has answers that result in solutions that you are comfortable living with. And in that sense, I don't think you have a, a, a intelligible, logically consistent explanation of suffering. I, I, have, I have a belief, I think, that's a little bit different than like a stoic belief because Okay, so even the Stoics if, don't if, explain if, suffering, right? So even even if we talk, because okay, so let's use death of, as an example, like death of loved ones, the presence of death. I think that's. I don't know if we, you want to talk about your belief on death really quick to let people know, but like you essentially don't believe that. Death, I don't believe there's a passing to another plane. No, 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 no. The, mm. the fact that you don't think that that death was necessarily supposed to be a feature, something mm. went wrong. Like you think, think something, something went, went wrong. wrong for yeah. death to exist here. Correct. Yeah. Where I see death a little bit more as a feature of the design. I think you see it as like a bug and I see it as a feature. Yeah, that's fair. So, okay. Because, so suffering, I think a good amount of suffering comes from like death, right? Lo- losing loved ones. But so let me try to come up with a couple of ways where I could see some like positives. Right. So one, it kind of, it, it makes you appreciate everyone more, right? So if if day to, our day-to-day lives, we could just go by 
And if we thought that everything was going to exist forever or everyone was going to exist forever, I just, I just believe that death makes you feel that sense of appreciation a little bit more. And it's like, it's something that you could experience if someone you love gets sick, right? Where maybe your day-to-day life, even though you love that person, that person's not on the forefront of your mind. You're not thinking about all the things you appreciate about that person's presence in your life. And then you're struck with something that, that makes you have to stop and, and appreciate everything about that person. Right. Or, or. Well, the unenlightened person needs constraint, external constraint. (sighs) But even an enlightened person is going to find through death and sickness, find moments to appreciate things more. Only because they didn't appreciate them for their own sake in the present. Like, so right now, like we were talking about how if you're living well in this present moment, you are giving thanks for your existence with every breath because you know that you don't hold yourself in existence. And so you're so aware of your own finitude, your own dependence on forces outside of yourself, that your appreciation for life is that thing without having to face death, right? Because even if there was no death, if you were enlightened, you would hold every day as dear because you'd know that you don't hold yourself in existence, right? So you don't have a right to exist. Even if you, even if there was no death. Why, they, why, they, why would you, why would you believe that you could lose your existence if there was no, because death? I don't hold myself in existence. But how would you have known that if death didn't exist? Or like what because would I, give because, you that? because I don't because I don't remember all of eternity past. I knew I I can I can know inherently that there was a time I didn't exist and something brought me into existence that wasn't me. And so I'm completely dependent on those forces that brought me into existence. But then wouldn't we then wouldn't we just view ourselves as gods? No, because only gods think, gods create themselves. But then we'd view our parents as gods. No, because our parents didn't create themselves. So you think that with no death, you would have, you would have had the awareness to think through. Well, where where did it all start? Uh, what I'm saying, point? I'm saying the enlightened person. So what you're describing about death and sickness and all these things are all the forces of pain and suffering that force people to get more philosophical, right? So it's external constraint that's forcing people into philosophical reflection, and you're seeing that as a benefit. Right. That's why you're saying, I think it was part of the structure, the design. Yeah. Right. What I'm saying is it's not necessary if you have enlightenment, right? You don't have, there doesn't have to be death for you to know that your existence is not guaranteed. Even if nobody's ever died, if you're enlightened, you could be like, I don't know why I'm here. I'm thankful to be here. If, if you told me that tomorrow we could all cease to exist and we didn't have a word for it, we didn't call it death because it wasn't happening all the time, but every day we gave thanks for our existence because we didn't make ourselves exist, you could have that sort of philosophical enlightenment without having to watch pain and suffering and death. Now, if you're not philosophically enlightened, then you need suffering to like force you into a place of philosophical enlightenment. So I'm, I'm open to you saying, well... God allows these things because they force people to be more philosophical. And I go, okay, that could be, but they don't, they weren't necessarily, they weren't, they weren't essential to the equation of being human. You don't think with mortality in, in, a, in the highest form, our, you don't think our mortality plays a role in it. Plays a I role. don't believe our mortality. It, it so, plays, so, plays a role so in our mortality, our, our, our watching death 
while it may cause us to be more philosophical, it's not a requirement to be self-aware enough to humbly give thanks for our existence because we didn't, we didn't create ourselves. So we can have a deep awareness of the gratitude of being without having to watch people suffer and die. If we're already, like if we're already enlightened, then we're not learning the lessons from suffering and death. Now, people who are unenlightened might be learning lessons from suffering and death. Okay. Okay. Let's, okay. So we're like more than the average inclined towards philosophy and enlightenment, right? Like, like I I think our natural state, we, we, we sought it out more in our younger lives. Mm -hmm. For me, it's hard for me to imagine what would have taken me there if it, the presence of death was just such a force for me at, at such a young age. And I don't know. An awareness of your own no, demise the, the, or lo- losing, other, losing, losing other people. Losing other people. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So what do you think would have been like driving factors for you in your own life as a younger person? Do you think you, think you would have been as inclined towards philosophy and enlightenment if it wasn't for the presence of death? Well, 100%. Yeah, because I, I was... I was incredibly aware of the fact that I don't hold myself in existence from a very young age. Okay. Then maybe can you define that a little bit more? Cause what, what does that mean without death? what is that? What does that mean is that I don't wake up in the morning and just accept my existence. I am amazed by my existence. Just being born. Just being the fact just that a, you exist. The fact that I can, I, I remember being like four years old and looking, holding my hands out in front of myself and thinking, whoa, what is this? Why am I? No way. Oh, yeah. Like, what the fuck is happening? And what, who are all these other people? And why are we in these bodies? You know, just like asking all these questions about just our existence itself. And when you realize how little you know about your own existence, which I had, for whatever reason, I was really, really aware at a young age of, so crazy. of how little I knew about my own existence, but I knew I existed and that freaked me out. And then, but then when I realized that other people weren't even questioning their own existence for whatever reason, they weren't like waking up in awe that they even existed that day. They were just waking up and like trying to get through the day. Like, like, like it was all just set in motion mm-hmm. and they accepted it. Mm-hmm. Like they didn't, they, they didn't wake up with any sense of mystery. They woke up with like clarity as to, the fact that today they got to go to work, they're going to drink some coffee. You know, they, they've got their whole routine, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. and never once in that routine did they feel a deep sense of awe that they even like their eyes opened in the morning. <laughs> Every day, my I open up my eyes, I feel a sense of awe. <laughs> it's fucking that amazing. I even exist, and and I don't know why other people don't feel that. And sometimes I wonder, is that enlightenment or is that some other sort of disease? I don't know. I don't know. I mean, <laughs> because I've had to overcome all those things when it comes to business life, athletic life, sexual life, you know, like all sorts of places where you have to get out of your own philosophical way to just be totally present in the truth of your being, the truth of your being alive and just like indulge in your in your pure being alive so so it seems without like reflection you were like orientated towards like positivity and existence and life and you were more viewing it that way in awe and i think i think my younger it, it's interesting because i think i maybe had like the opposite experience where 
I was orientated at a very young age towards like constantly in fear of losing existence. Other people's existence, not my, I didn't care about my own. Uh-huh. I didn't have any awe about my own. I only lived in constant fear of losing of, of things being ripped away from me, yeah. you know? And so I think I was orientated a lot more towards like anxiety, well, like, like fear of death, fear, like, like, yeah. And what's Focus interesting about death. that. So what's interesting about that is that, so then you want to say suffering doesn't matter, right? On some level, like suffering doesn't matter. And what I'm wondering is if what you're really trying to get to is maybe the place that my side of the philosophical fence would be, because my side of the philosophical fence accepts death because I was shocked every day that I was alive. Yeah. So death doesn't seem like that big a deal because every day of my life I was shocked that I existed. So the fact that then one day I don't exist, I'm like, all right, well, I mean, today's a bonus. I exist on some level. And same with other people. Like, I'm shocked that everybody exists every day, that the whole world's held, held together by the voice of God. Like, the only reason we all wake up in the morning and open our eyes is because this, the universe, at the center of the universe, God says, wake up. Like, be, be. And I, and, and I almost had the opposite experience where I, w- I would almost, I mean, this is dark. I don't know if I've ever admitted it, but I was almost only or. <laughs> I'd almost hope that my death would come before I had to experience the death of people that I loved. And like, to, because I, I couldn't imagine coping. And, I, and it's like, I, I don't know. I couldn't imagine coping at all. So, and, and so I'd be trying to come up with like, if this were to happen or if this were to happen, like how the fuck would I cope? And, the, and like my best answer would be, Shit, I, I would be great if I would fucking, if I would die before If you them. went first, you, you'd feel gratitude of not having to observe that's, the suffering, that's what, that's what live I used to in feel the at a, really, of, at a really young age. Yeah. And that didn't come from some experience. You just feel like it was innate to who you were. Yeah. I mean, the only thing I can imagine is just my parents were a little bit on the older side. And so I was a little, but I don't know. That doesn't seem rational because they but weren't. Did you treat old. every day? Did you wake up at a young age and look around and be like, I'm going to enjoy my mom today because I'm lucky she's alive? Yes. Yeah. Well, I mean, that's actually like really healthy. Yeah. Right. In the sense that if we, if we don't view life as given, right? Like we don't, we don't view life as a, a given, like something that, is automatically going to happen, but we view it as a gift. Yeah. Then the level of gratitude that we feel for our loved ones Mm -hmm. is what I would think of as a core element to enlightenment. Yeah. But I, I, but I was still like, kind of like depressed where now I think I, I'm, I'm, I'm actually like more happy and fulfilled, but then also have that awareness of like, how fucking lucky I am, am I that in this moment, Ryan still exists. Yeah. My mom's still, I'm just like, well, I, I better fucking take it and enjoy this moment. <laughs> you know what I mean? So, and, and you don't want to die because you want to enjoy all of the moments that you're given. Yes. Yeah. Like, exactly. like, like a being should that doesn't have control over its own existence. Yeah. 
Yeah. Well, and then the other part of that is like just an awareness of like, man, well, if I went first, that'd still be, I'd be leaving everyone like that would leave my parents in a fucked up situation, way more fucked up situation than the, than the alternative. Right. Like, so yeah, it's far more suffering like for a, for far a parent more to bury their child than yeah. for a, a child to bury their parent at some point. Mm-hmm. Right. Obviously if you're burying your parents when you're eight. Yeah. That's yeah. That's right. a, that's a level of suffering that few of us know. <laughs> yeah. God. Man. About, and, yeah. But the suffering of burying your child. I can't fucking imagine that. Yeah. It's crazy. It's, it's crazy that people experience things like that and they find a way to push forward. You know, I'm always, it's Joe. I'm always in awe of like, yeah. How to, how to, how could somebody lose a child find and, a way and not keep, curse God and die? Yeah. Resilience, you know, I mean, hope and resilience, somehow a hope and belief that there is meaning, right? Okay. So now we're getting back to like your notion of suffering. It's a hope and belief that there's meaning beyond the suffering. That's what you mean yeah. by suffering doesn't matter. There's a meaning beyond it. There's yeah. a meaning beyond the suffering. So I'm not going to get caught up in the suffering such that I get so discouraged that I just want to curse God and die. Yeah. Well, I guess this goes back to your hope thing, but but for the most part, m- m- most suffering is temporary. Well, all suffering is temporary. Because even if you're suffering at the end, well, then you die and you're not suffering anymore. We don't know what happens next. Don't know if that's true. We don't know if that's true. <laughs> but, right? If you believe in, if you believe in a in a this, a human soul philosophy that says the soul can evolve or devolve, and that you believe the soul is eternal, that the soul is somehow eternal, that if the soul devolves to a place where it's only capable of non-gratitude and suffering and yet the soul is eternal then there might be suffering that's forever yeah now that's scary it's a scary thought and it should be scary and we should not want to get to a place where we devolve to to a kind of life where we just suffer yeah and we have no gratitude because we wouldn't want to be in that place forever yeah. Right. right. Yeah. And and so one of the lies, I mean, this is this is the lie of killing yourself, right? The lie of the the deception of the suicide is that somehow this will end the suffering. When you don't really know. When you don't really know. Yeah. Yeah. So the real question is not should I kill myself? The real question is, will I endure the suffering today with hope? Or do I have I given up hope? Do I curse God and die? Uh huh. How is that different than suicide? Well, no, the suicide is curse God and die. That's what I'm saying. But <laughs> yeah. but but I think the lie of the suicide is that somehow this will end the suffering. Mm-hmm. Or you know, I think there are people who kill themselves to make other people suffer. Whoa, really? Hundred percent. They're so angry. They're so hurt. They're so whatever. They're like, Fuck. they're gonna they're gonna be fucking. When I kill myself, they're gonna suffer. Oh fuck! Yeah. That's dark. That's dark. I mean, suicide is dark. Suicide is dark. Mm-hmm. Shit. It's hard to feel the right to kill yourself when you feel a deep sense that you don't. Oh, you don't have any response. You don't have any ownership of your own existence. So, have you ever have you ever gone through any like thought experiment that would have taken you to th- consider would I ever take my own life in in X and X circumstance? Well, I mean, I've thought many times about like 
you know, what kind of a sickness might I have to have? Like what, like what if I was diagnosed with Alzheimer's and my, I was going to go, I was going to get to a place where I didn't even know my own existence or know the existence of the people around me or all those kind of things. I would want to just die. I would rather die than go through whatever. And the only thing that would keep me from that is I wouldn't feel free to choose to die because I don't believe that I somehow have any responsibility for my own existence. So I'd feel some responsibility to whatever thing, whatever's holding me in existence. I would feel some responsibility to not thwart that. Mm -hmm. Right. But the only way you can do that is if somehow you believe what you're kind of talking about, which is that somehow my suffering is going to be for something beyond just my suffering. And that even my suffering, the suffering it's causing other people, right? My sickness and my whatever, somehow that's going to be more meaningful than the suffering itself. But my rational self is just like, if I lose my mind and I don't even know I exist, then I don't want to be a burden on my loved ones. I just want to die. Like, just can I just like tap out so I'm not a burden? I don't want to be a burden on anybody. And so I totally get like euthanasia in those in those respects. I also, you know, I understand the same with different forms of disease that cause incredible dysfunction and suffering as well, where you just say, I don't really want to go through that. And I don't, and I, and, and more so than me not wanting to go through it. I don't want to have all my loved ones have to go through mm-hmm. it with me. So I have a huge amount of grace for people that choose that under those circumstances. But philosophically, it's really hard for me to feel the freedom to take my own life because I have such a deep awareness of the fact that I don't have anything to do with my withholding myself in existence. Right. So I feel that gratitude. I feel, I feel a humility of existence that would make it very hard for me to feel the right to kill myself. Right. So I wanted to start it by, you know, background on Ryan. He was Jessica and I's professor at USC teaching us real estate finance. And Ryan and I became friends after, right after I kind of finished that course, we stayed in touch and hung out. And one of our first conversations together, I met up with him at Lemonade in Pasadena. And in that like first conversation, the, I mean, it took all sorts of like interesting directions, but God the idea of God and belief in God came up. And at the time, I don't think I did believe in God. I went through like my high school and early college years thinking that I was too smart to believe in God. (laughs) Because at that point, everyone that I thought was really smart and that I respected didn't believe in God. And it kind of seemed like the belief in God was irrational. And then here I was talking to my professor that was probably the most maybe the most rational person I've met up until that point. And you were telling me that you believe in God. (laughs) And so that was, so, and then I think like, I think God probably came up in for a while, every time we, we hung out since then. And, and then it, it, at some point it restored my belief in God. But do you want to talk a little bit about your like early journey into believing in God? Cause I think you went, I think when we talked about it before, there was maybe a moment in high school where you were also flirting with the idea of, is, is this a rational belief and, and how you 
I, don't, I think, I think, remember the notion of God can be a lot of different things. And because it could be a lot of different things doesn't mean that it actually is a lot of different things. But you don't, it, it doesn't take that much to say, I believe in God, right? And then you try to, and then you, however you define God, like we could define God as energy. And people would be like, well, I believe in energy. <laughs> it's really hard to deny energy. But, but, Really, when you the, the first step of just saying I believe in God is really just the humility to say I don't hold myself in existence, and then to say something holds me in existence, and what is that? And that's and 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 that's God. And now 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 what is God? Right. So now you now you start the real journey, which is a philosophical journey. If the if if you start with the notion that there is no God, meaning there is no meaning of the universe. It's all just nothingness and dust and randomness. Then there is no philosophical conversation. So all of your desire to explore philosophically is moot. Mm-hmm. And so the reason why our conversations always involve God was not because we were talking necessarily about God, but we were talking about meaning. Mm-hmm. And there is no meaning if there is no God. Mm-hmm. Now, the kind of God also has huge impact on what kind of meaning. So... Once we determine that we want there to be meaning, then we necessarily have to accept that there is a God. But accepting that there is a God doesn't mean you know God or that God knows you. Mm -hmm. And so then you have an entirely different journey, right? You have the journey of, I believe there's a God, but do I hear the voice of God? And then to go on a journey to try to hear the voice of God, that is really the entire essence of spirituality. No matter what path you choose, you have to be, if you're not on that path to hear the voice of God, then what the hell are you on the path for, right? It doesn't, even, it doesn't make any philosophical sense that you're on whatever journey, unless you're trying to seek the voice. Now, the, by the voice, I mean the hearing and feeling the presence of God such that you feel connected to the universe in a way that is personal and direct. And I think that there are many paths to find that. I have to believe that. But it doesn't mean that there are many versions of God. So you can't have all these religions and believe that somehow all these religions are right. Because there's many religions, you have to believe that the many religions are wrong. And they all might be wrong in different ways. But at the core, if their purpose isn't to help people, try to hear the voice of God personally and be enlightened by that voice such that they might actually know how to live, well, then all of that is worthless religion. And so for me, I had no doubt that there was a God. I had no idea who God was or what his voice was. Looking back, you can, you, once you hear the voice of God, then you, then you can look back and actually see that you were hearing the voice of God far beyond far far before you actually could buy it as the voice of god mm-hmm. if that makes sense mm-hmm. and just like if you were a, a mathematician or a physicist trying to solve some big theory of physics when you finally solved it then it would you'd go back and you'd be like and now i see the answer to all these other questions that i'd been asking because mm-hmm. i solved this equation that then informed all this other stuff I'd been working on. And the same is true. You hear the voice of God and then you realize you've heard the voice of God your whole life. Mm -hmm. But because you didn't know how to hear, how to identify the voice of God, 
then it was it was just hard to know what voices were the voice of God and what voices were television, <laughs> you know, or or all the other influences in your life that were creating voices and and notions and you know what have you. But I didn't have a good theory of God growing up. I mean, I had some theory, but I didn't have good theories. And so I didn't have good philosophical explanations as to why a God would create, why a God would hold us in existence, all those kind of things. When I was in high school, I went through a time where I was just like, maybe it's all meaningless. Like, what would, I, what would, I, what would my life look like if I believed it was all meaningless? And I tried to live kind of like that, but it's very, very hard mm-hmm. because it's so depressing. Yeah. It's so depressing to wake up and think it's all meaningless and that it's all dust. And I would argue that if you, if you try to live that way and you feel totally depressed, that clearly that's not true about the universe. Mm-hmm. Because if you were a meaningless being living in a meaningless universe, then you would be completely content with that meaninglessness. Mm. And so if you're a person who's completely content with the meaninglessness, well, then God bless you. Mm-hmm. <laughs> <laughs> you're lucky. You're one of the lucky ones. Because the rest of us, if we have to stare into the pit of, of nothingness, we find that to be depressing. Yeah. And so for me, that depre- the depression of, of nihilism made me just say, this can't be true. I'm not willing to believe this is true. I'm not willing to be depressed. Well, the, the thing is, if you, were, if you were going to have that belief, you would like really think it through and make sure, like, and, and really live a life that would be true to believing in meaningless. 100%. I think a lot of people don't live their life as if there's meaningless, as if it's meaningless, but they still but they philosophically, believe, they philosophically, well, they, they, they philosophically claim meaninglessness. Yes. But they, but they, they, but they live, live like there's life meaning as if they're, yeah, yeah. Yeah. Right. Well, that's just, that's just disingenuous. <laughs> it's philosophically disingenuous. Yeah. But you don't blame them because there actually is meaning. So you don't want to discourage them from living like there's meaning just because they have bad philosophical ideas. No. Their ideas can be shit and their lives can be great. Right. There's lots of people like this. Yeah. Right. There's lots of people that live better lives than me. I have better ideas than them, but they have better lives than me. Right. I have better ideas than them, but they're better people than me. <laughs> right. So, so I'd rather be a better person than be a person with good ideas, but I just happen to be born somebody that's good, good at thinking about ideas. Uh-huh. And so it doesn't make me like, it definitely doesn't make me a better person. <laughs> it just makes me better ex- at explaining things. <laughs> where, where do you think you fall short as a, as a good person? Oh my God. I mean, I don't know. Like I, I just, I feel like I'm, I carry all of my own pain that I think causes me to be very introverted. Like I have a huge amount of gratitude, but I, but I carry a lot of pain that causes me to be less engaged and loving than maybe I otherwise would be mm-hmm. if I didn't have the kind of pain that leads me to spend a lot of my time life alone and feel good about that. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. I think introversion has to be born from pain. I don't think humans, I don't think the healthiest humans are introverts. Huh. I think the healthiest humans would be more, way more social and communal and loving, and because I because I believe that the center of the universe is communal, right? I believe that the center of the universe is relational, uh-huh. and so being at being 
as introverted as I am. And what I mean by that is I'm very social. I'm a very social introvert, but I'm emotionally self-contained uh-huh. in a way, in ways that I think are probably not the healthiest, but I don't know how to get, I don't totally know how to get out of it because it feels so good. <laughs> I, I find so much satisfaction. Wait, being how does that play out when you're being self-contained around people? Cause I, I guess I, uh, when I'm around you, that's usually not the case. When I'm around you, I'm not self-contained. Yeah, but right? so what, 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 what do your you. interactions look but like? But think about how much time we can go without talking. <laughs> but I find that delightful, and you do too, because yeah, you're right. an introvert too. Right? <laughs> and so that's one of the reasons why we can be such good friends is that it doesn't matter how much time goes by. The conversation just picks right back up. Right. And we both have so much respect for the other person's space that we would never invade each other's space. Yes. It's one of the reasons why my marriage works so good. You know, Brittany's introverted. And so having two introverts, like we just don't invade each other's space. And that's incredibly wonderful. Yeah. Right. It's so like, it's, it, 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 it's such a luxury yeah. to have people who you love and who love you, who honor your space. Yeah. But, but I also recognize that honoring of my space is, is I think a vice as well. Like, I think, I think it's not the healthiest part of who I am, uh-huh. even though it feels so delightful to be self-contained. <laughs> it feels so delightful. Uh, like I, I love to be able to have relationships on my own terms where I can disappear or reappear kind of at will. And I just don't believe that that's the healthiest. (laughs) Does that make sense? Like I know like if I was a better Mm. human, I'd, I'd communicate with my children even more. Uh Right. But I just am terrible at it. Uh Right. And I, I don't communicate with my parents and I don't have a good communication with my brother. And so there's lots of people in my life that feel really neglected by me. But what they may or may not understand is just, I find so much delight in being self-contained and I find, and I have so much regard for other people's sanct- the sanctity of their own self-containment that I'm incredibly reluctant to, to, to interfere yeah. with their solitude. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> if, but, if that makes sense. So there's like, there's a deep respect that goes to the non-communication, but, but I just don't believe it's the hell. But is that because you feel that if you have to self-contain because people will let you down? For sure, there's some element of that. I mean, that's one of the reasons why I'm so also self-reliant. Yeah. I don't want to be like my, one of my, it's like we were talking about like Alzheimer's, like the notion, like that is like the worst death. I, I just can't imagine a worse death than being a massive burden on all my loved ones mm-hmm. for a long, long time. Yeah. That sounds, that sounds terrible to me. Yeah. Right. And so, but because of that, my life, I just, I know that, I know that I'm not, relationally engaged on the level that the healthiest humans probably are. Right. I'm not socially engaged on the, on the level that the healthiest humans probably are. I'm not spiritually engaged on the level that I think the healthiest humans probably are. There's, I don't think there's any part of life that I'm engaged at the level that the healthiest humans probably are. (laughs) (laughs) Now, Maybe, maybe the place, maybe, maybe I, maybe I excel in self-awareness. <laughs> yeah, for sure. Right. <laughs> but, but I'm not sure how virtuous that makes me. <laughs> That's fair. I think I have that same problem. Right. <laughs> right. All right. Well, I know you got to get somewhere. So thank you for doing this. I, we should do, I hope we could do a lot more of these, but anytime. Thanks for Always listening, everyone. All right. This is getting the bear ad by getting the Carla Cafe. From Avi. Please subscribe to get one.
to see more of our podcast. Bye.